Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Learning Grounds podcast. I'm Zach Chase, and in this episode, I got to talk with Jolan McNeil, who is working with the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana. Fascinating conversation. Started with suspension rates, then it turned to social-emotional supports, then it turned to how students and teachers can work together, and the responsibility of schools, and the role of community, and organizing in Louisiana, and the stories that aren't coming out of New Orleans, and the school reform efforts there. Just, just wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful conversation. Um, Jolan was on video in the conversation, and I was not, and she showed some visuals that she references in the recording. So I'll make sure that on autodidactic.com you can uh, search Jolan and, and see the video portion of this chat. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Learning Grounds. I can't see you. I, I do not send the video because I worry that it's going to eat up too much bandwidth. Oh, okay. So. Well, should I answer with the video or no? No, sure, go ahead. Give okay, me, well, I did. Give me something to look at. But I'm not sure where you want me to put this mug. <laughs> Wherever you want. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm trying to find a place where you'd actually see the mug, but my desk is pretty junky at the moment. <laughs> you don't need to worry about it. I can Knowing the mug is there is enough for me. Oh, okay. Well, maybe, you know, every once in a while, pretend to sip from it. I think that's a great idea. Just make a sipping sound. You don't even need to pick up the mug. Oh, awesome. I'm doing well. What's going on with you, PhD student? <laughs> um, just a lot of PhD studenting. Why is my computer doing that stuff? So, you still there? Yep. Okay. My computer keeps giving me this crazy screen that you probably can't see, but nope. I can't. So what is it you're doing now? I am working at the Juvenile Justice Project of Louisiana. I'm trying to wear our shirt, but you can't really see it. There we go. Maybe you can see it now. See? JJPL. It is uh, a nonprofit statewide juvenile justice reform and advocacy group in New Orleans, based in New Orleans, but we do statewide work. Okay. And what does that mean? Um, What are you doing? I am currently, after January 4th of this year, the managing director. Oh, congratulations. So what does that mean? So it means in terms of, well, thank you. So it, I'm also uh, the director of a, our school's first project, which is our project that looks at the school-to-prison pipeline here in, in Louisiana, but which is, might be much more fun to talk about than being the managing director. <laughs> we can talk about both. It's perfect. I just want to know why my computer keeps doing this. Maybe if I minimize it, it'll stop. Maybe. Okay. You see me in my messy, my messy office right now. Oh yeah, it's beautiful. <laughs> That's how I know so, it's a real nonprofit. It is. Hold on. Wait a minute. <laughs> good. Good getting the mug in. <laughs> so, so what's the goal of the of the organization? So the goal is to transform the juvenile justice system into one that is humane and safe for kids, that is strength-based rather than deficit-based. And so what we see here in Louisiana, about 15 years ago, which is part of the reason why JJPL exists now, is Louisiana's juvenile facilities were for-profit managed, um, not managed by the state. And we saw terrible abuses, murders, of deaths of kids, horrible, horrible conditions for kids in juvenile facilities. So a group of lawyers with JJPL alongside the Department of Justice sued and 
got a settlement after about five or six years to close the for-profit uh, facilities for juveniles here in Louisiana. And so now all of the facilities, which there are four, um, three for young men, one for young women, are managed by the state, by the, uh, the created office after the settlement, the Office of Juvenile Justice. And so what we do here, like just really concretely, is monitor the conditions of confinement for children in facilities. We advocate for co more community-based um, alternatives to incarceration and detention, and there's some split-offs from there. So we look at kids in the adult system. We look at special populations like the LGBTQ populations in facilities. And now our work has expanded to youth organizing to capitalize or just not capitalize, but really like run with the energy that's in the city right now for young people getting involved in, in, in the change movement. Um, so youth organizing and our school's first project, where, which is what I direct, which is the project that looks at school discipline and exclusionary practices as a way that funnel kids into the juvenile justice system. And how, um, so juvenile justice to me says youth detention facilities. Yep. How is that connected to schools? Like what's the, what's the, con the combination there? Sure. So there's a couple of things that we do at the, with the school's first project specifically. So the first one is to look at the ways in which other institutions impact the juvenile justice system. And one of the major um, institutions or systems is schools. So when we look at um, school exclusionary discipline practices like suspensions, expulsions, school arrests, we, we know that there is a higher or a more likelihood of those young people who've been suspended, expelled, and arrested at school, a higher likelihood that they'll be uh, involved in the juvenile justice system. So what do you so, do with that knowledge? What do we do with that knowledge? We I mean, are... it, <laughs> see, that makes sense. Right? <laughs> it all seems logical, but what, what do you do after that to affect real change? So what we're doing right now is working with this, trying to work with the school systems here. So JJPL works on a campaign model. So we look at various ways in which to impact the change. So policy or legislation. Um, oh, wow. Why am I forgetting? This? Uh, outreach, communications, a media strategy. Oh, boy. Those are the three arms of our, um, our legislation, like our campaign push. And so right now we're, we're engaged in a, com um, a public awareness, public education campaign. So if you go to our website, jjpl.org and look for our school's first um, tab. You'll find some new information about the, the discipline rates here in the city. So that's the first, that's one of the parts that we're doing, trying to get aware, get folks aware of discipline as um, a, a measure of success for schools as well, or the way in which those numbers need to go down for exactly. No, so I would, I would think though that, that some people would hear that and say, well, it's not that they're getting suspended that is that is becoming the thing, but it's that like these kids are are problems in the first place, and so we we need to fix that. Like we got to keep suspending them, otherwise our schools aren't safe. And what what we say is that suspension doesn't necessarily make the school safer, and the research points to that. Um, and suspensions don't stop suspensions. So the way that we look at it here is if there's going to be all this kind of innovation or at least different thinking differently about the way we structure schools for academic success, we also have to look at how we structure schools and systems in schools for social, emotional 
and um, personal development success as well. If suspension solved anything, the number would have gone down by now. And what we see in New Orleans, particularly, the numbers go up and up every year as the state number, the state average goes down every year. So the number the, in New Orleans, the, the numbers are going up. Yeah, I wish I, you probably can't see this, but this is a great chart that I just made. Can't see it. But this says, this is the, the New Orleans number. Okay. And down here is the state number. Oh, that is, those are different. Very different. And so you even see the state average is much lower. That's a huge gap. Right. In the state average and what is happening in New Orleans. And as it continues to go up, this is 2007-2008 school year, and this is the 2011-2012 school year. This continues to go up. This continues to go down. So So the other piece of the work, I mean, just besides the, the public education campaign is the work that we do with the recovery school district to help them create policies that do work for kids. So in our work, we have helped them to revise the school discipline code to uh, lower, to decrease, I'm sorry, the number of automatic, automatically suspendable violations to limit the, excuse me, to limit the violations that are expellable to only what's included in the law and to mandate more parent inter- parent contact and more school-based interventions for kids and suspensions. The problem always is in the implementation of it. Yeah, I would imagine, though, like, that if I were to sit down, like, that, that I, I'm, I'm on board with all this. Um, but it, that's got to be really difficult for schools, though, right? I mean... To, to like, I would imagine the answer is, all right, if you don't want me to suspend them and you don't want me to expel them, it feels like you're taking away some tools I have for keeping other kids safe. What am I supposed to do? Well, the thing is, we're not even talking about, I'm, we're not talking about like the big, the big two, right? We're not talking about firearms and drugs. Most okay. kids in, in this city get suspended for things called, well, this, this catch-all phrase called willful disobedience which could be anything from not pulling up your pants when a teacher tells you to, to running down the hallway. Um, so somewhere around... <laughs> Those 90, don't seem like they're on the same level as, as weapons and drugs. I, we don't think so either. And so, um, again, this is, is all about what's happening in implementation. And what's unique here in the city is that there are... I just pulled this up so I could show you that picture, too. Um, but the vast majority of our students are in charter schools, not in a district school. So charter schools can do what they want in terms of their discipline policy. And so the, the, the real work for us going forward in New Orleans is how do we get uh, and build relationships with charter school leaders and charter, charter management organizations to get them to start thinking about discipline as a metric as well. Because the district, the, the New Orleans, the recovery school district right now, in the next two years is going to be gone. And so we won't have a main target, a main relationship that we already have to continue to work with um, to get these numbers down because they're just absurd at this point. Well, and this is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you. We've, <laughs> we've tried to make this thing happen a couple of times. So um, just watching your feed on Facebook um, as things are going down, um, you're one of my favorite people to read. Uh, just, oh. <laughs> just because... Yay. Just because it's like, here's the news, and here is real reaction to that news. Um, 
But how, do, how what's the plan then? I mean, it, I, from just uh, outside of juvenile justice, that seems like a pretty sketchy model for public education. Right. So essentially, we, we I'm trying to say this succinctly, but I don't have it succinctly in my brain yet. That's okay. We got some time. We keep, okay. So we keep talking about, you know, educational equity right now, right? Even if we move this away from juvenile justice, if we just think about educational equity as this movement in America, and that's what this reform is supposed to be about, increasing educational equity, improving the outcomes of students of color, low-income students, other marginalized students, improving their academic outcomes, getting them to college, right? We've forgotten the <clears throat> getting them through college, but as long as we get them to college, everything will be all right. Well, the way I look at it is we can't be talking about all of all kids if we know routinely 50% of them are out of school because we have suspended them. There's a school here Did in New Orleans. Did you say 50%? I, that's, a, that's the extreme level. There is a school here in New Orleans that has a 52.5% suspension rate. So how do we really start talking about moving the needle on academic achievement if any given day a number of our students are outside of the classroom because we haven't, as adults in the building, we haven't figured out how to keep them there. That so, so our message to educators is this, because I'm one as well, you know, academic achievement is what we're looking for, but also our job as educators is to look at the social emotional development of the folks that we are in care of. And we can't keep, we can't keep ignoring this problem, suspending a kid, kicking them out of school for five days or three days or 10 days doesn't actually solve the problem. And if the problem, it doesn't change behavior, not for the majority of the kids that we serve. So it might for me, who was a goody two shoes, <laughs> I knew that everybody in my church and my neighborhood would be disappointed. And probably, you know, this was years ago when corporal punishment was okay would beat me after school. Like, let's be real. Nowadays we, don't, nowadays, we don't live in those, we don't live in that world. And so, you know, when kids make mistakes, educators, school counselors, school guidance, social workers, we all have to chip in to figure out what to do to keep the kid in school. So I, I guess I think kind of, as you're kind of talking about pipelines, I'm thinking pipelines. And there are a lot of teachers I've met who haven't had the training that would get them to mm -hmm. be able to provide those socio-emotional supports, right? I mean, you would hope that on a personal level, I can talk to a kid as a person and make that kind of connection. But there are people who are in the classroom, very little experience, very little training, who don't have the, the guidance to, to necessarily be the most effective teacher, let alone being right. a socio-emotional support. Right. So we see that, you know, there's a larger issue that impacts schools that then impact kids and what the adults do to impact kids. So this... I was a part of an alternative certification program, um, nationally known. I won't say the name of it, but um, so there's a bunch of these programs out. There's also, you know, the traditional programs that don't focus on this, and so part of the right. larger yeah, issue, no, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that it's one kind of program that's fallen down on this one. The, the larger issue is like, when do educators of educators start paying attention to this issue? Yeah, to make it important. So, you know, one of the things I was actually quite disappointed in in my graduate school program was that this wasn't a part of 
the conversation for school leaders. I was in a school leadership program that didn't talk about looking at discipline as a, a measure of success or what we could do for students um, who were experiencing discipline or behavioral problems, who were in crisis. How do we talk to teachers through um, how do we talk to teachers about these kinds of things? How do we help teachers through these kinds of things? We actually didn't have those conversations, and it saddened me. So what do you do? How do you move that? I mean, is, I, mean I, I understand that's, that's not the focus of your, of your organization necessarily, but, but, but it just as an educator. Own, but it becomes part of my own personal right. mission, right? So I have this huge network of school leaders and you know, folks who are in my alternative program, uh, certification program with whom, you know, we are starting a partnership with them, our, or my organization, JJPL, and um, some teacher groups to, to start having that conversation with them. You know, there'll be a group of stu- uh, not student teachers, first through fifth grade teachers that I'll be working with personally starting at the end. Oh, wow. It's next week. Um, starting next <laughs> week, excuse me, through the summer, working with this smaller group of teachers through looking at discipline as a metric, how to create intervention plans for their for their classroom and for their schools and for individual students. So part of our work is saying, like, who else impacts this system and what kind of things, particularly for free, that we can offer them? Does it mean a whole lot of work for us? Absolutely. But is it worth it for kids? Absolutely. So what do you start? I mean, what are some first practical steps when you're moving into a situation like that? What you mean in terms of like like if you're going into work with a school and a group of teachers, what are some what are some first steps that you take to to get the the ball rolling? The the first part of I guess in some I don't want to say training, but this conversation is a conversation about suspensions in general and our assumptions and our beliefs around um, discipline and punishments versus restorative practices. So that's the first step for us. Just getting the conversation on about, like, do suspensions work? Do they teach lessons? Are they about a vacation for teachers? Would you, you know, what kinds of things would you rather happen for a kid? You know, is there a way? What happens when a kid gets suspended when they come back to school? How do they feel? How do you feel as an adult in the, in the building? So that's the first part for us, just ha- opening the conversation around suspensions. And then we start looking at particularly how our actions in schools impact kids outside of schools, and in particular, the juvenile justice system. So we do, um, cover, we have conversations, this training around, uh, or workshops, so to speak, on the school-to-prison pipeline. So the things that happen in school and, like, step-by-step, step, how kids can get caught up into the juvenile justice system and what it actually means for a kid who does get caught there. What, what those... Um, detention or uh, those detention centers look like? What happens to a kid while he or she is there? And then what does that mean for their outcomes, you know, their life outcomes afterwards? And then we start talking about like real practical steps you can do inside of your classroom to disrupt the school to prison pipeline. So for example, count to 10 before you start talking to a kid who's made you upset. (laughs) Sometimes 20. 20, you you know, calm yourself down first before you start talking to a child who's been upset. You know, some of the proactive stuff that we talk about is, you know, engaging with parents before there is a problem. You know, letting them know that you're there as a teacher, as a supporter of the child, but also a supporter of the student, I mean, of that family. So, you know, that those that's generally the, the track that we go on. That, so, I was, uh, do you know Jose Vilson in 
New York? Have you heard the JLV? Mm-mm. You should check him out. Um, but I talked to him a couple episodes ago, and uh, one of the questions I posed to him, and I, and I think this is valid, and I mean, it's not how I would operate, but I can understand the validity when teachers say this. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of spoke to it a little bit. You knew that if you got in trouble, your church, your community, your family would all, you know, kick your butt. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in asking teachers and schools to take this on, are we, are we letting the school, the community, or the, the community, the family, the church off the hook? Are we taking over too much? Is this more than schools should have to, have to do? I don't I, see. I don't think so. I just come from an era where the school, where the school was actually part of the community, so there was no, there was wasn't a separation there. Mm-hmm. The problem now is that we have schools, and I'll say particularly in New Orleans, we have schools that aren't community based, that have nothing to do with our communities here, that have just kind of been implanted. So they don't have real community. They don't have relationships with parents. Don't have community relationships. There isn't a long history of these schools where. You know, previous to Katrina, if you went to, say, Cohen High School as a a teenager, your aunt, your mother, your father, your uncle went to Cohen, your grandmother, your grandmother might have went to Cohen, half your church went to Cohen. So there was really the the school was an extension of the community. We don't have that anymore. I just challenge. I don't think we let them off the hook. I just challenge schools to make the necessary connections with the communities with families, with the resources and, and churches in the community to make it whole again. No, we don't let them off the hook, but we also have to make sure that there's a continuum of the same messages that you're hearing at school, you're hearing at church or in, in your you know faith center, in your families, in your neighborhoods, that those messages are the same or at least congruent. So um, you mentioned you were talking about research uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. Imagine that uh, you've got some books, you got some places that people could look if they're interested in this stuff. Uh, Google Dan Lawson. Lawson. L O S E N. Dan Lawson. Okay. Or Johanna Wald. J O H A N N A. Her last name is Wald. W A L D. Um, and then I would say also Gary Orfield. Gary, and then his last name is O R F I. F-I-E-L-D, and these are some of the leading researchers on the school-to-prison pipeline, how schools, uh, school climate impact, um, academic performance, and later on in life. There's a bunch of stuff. Let me see. No, that's not helpful. You, uh, you probably cannot see this right now, but Education Week has just done their quality count survey on school discipline. Mm-hmm. And in, the, in this month, what is this, February? Mm-hmm. In February, uh, Teaching Tolerance did an issue on the school-to-prison pipeline and how teachers specifically can disrupt um, the school-to-prison pipeline with concrete ideas for that for in the classroom. And I don't know if you saw it, but uh, the alumni magazine from our, uh, our fair institution also has a cover story on the prison pipeline I, this month. I, I heard about it. I don't know why I don't get that anymore. <laughs> you just, you've just gone under the radar. There. <laughs> Apparently, they better get with it. I was just quoted in Education Week, so they better get with it. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a little bit, if you would. I, I know um, New Orleans was a, it was a conversation that happened when we were both at the Harvard Ed School last year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
not not necessarily the most balanced conversation that I've ever experienced. But no. But talk to that. talk to me about what's going on there and like what what is the story that's not getting out of New Orleans about education, given the kind of given the kind of dominant dialogue that's happening right now. So I, I, the the changing of the narrative, you're right, must happen and must happen soon. Um, and, and JJPL, along with other groups like Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children, United Students for New Orleans, Young Adults Striving for Success, and those two are student groups, are young uh, youth organizing folks. Um, so the the story that's not being told is how this system of autonomous independent schools is really impacting this community in the sense that schools that have been around forever for generations like i was saying earlier that have been the you know the focal point of a community are gone and so what do we do to communities when we take away one of the major um, institutions one of the things that galvanizes a community is a football game or a concert or a basketball game and it's been for hist you know for for i don't know for generations how does what does that do to impact what how does it impact a community that's already been traumatized by hurricane katrina so there's i think there's been just a lot of unintended consequences to this new education reform so that's the first thing like what is it doing to our communities well and it sounds like and before you get to the second thing it's um it sounds like it's a consequence we could have predicted because as you talk about autonomous schools, they're not just autonomous of a district control, but they sound like they're autonomous of community interests. Yep, exactly. That, that is well said, Zach. Um, I think we didn't do, uh, the, the, the engineers of this reform in New Orleans just had, quite frankly, an utter ignorant disdain for New Orleans. In as much as they saw an opportunity to help kids, I think um, what also happened was we're not actually, we don't actually care about what New Orleans was beforehand. We see an opportunity to change it to something that we think is better without actually at all inviting folks in New Orleans as part of the conversation. Um, this, the second part for me is this, and there's this racial component to it that, you know, folks don't want to hear, but the... You know, New Orleans is 60% black, I think, something around that now, um, probably higher pre-Katrina. But the face of education reform in this city is decidedly white and upper class. And this is not a, a white upper class city by no stretch of the imagination. And the, and the communities that have been impacted by this education reform are the lower income black communities, but they are not invited to the table. They are not invited to be part of the conversation. And I think it's disrespectful to say the least, to say that these um, upper class white folks who will never put their schools in a public school, their kids in a public school, can make decisions about other people's children with, without asking them, but then you know thwart their efforts to organize that power structure, structure and that hierarchy is really um, present here in, in New Orleans. And I, you know, personally, I got a big problem with that. So um, what, is the, what is the role of, of the community? I mean, how's the community answering that? Is there, is there the ability there? I think there's always the ability there. Uh, what, 
my, my guess is, is that I'm confident that there are folks in this city who are concerned about education. Our voices are small right now. Um, there is one of the, the leading advocates, or what is it? Not advocate, detractors of this reform. Her name is Karen Harper Royal, and she ran for school board against a very um, rich, <laughs> very powerful, influential person who helped create, was one of the architects of this, you know, mastermind plan to for New Orleans schools. Um, so she ran against her to get the, the message of, you know, the, an alternative message out, and she lost completely. Um, and it, was that just an issue of money, it sounds like? Yeah, I think it was an issue of money. This was a race where Karen's um, opponent, who was well-funded by Bloomberg, and the same things that we saw in the state race, with the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education, we see across the country as well, other outside interests becoming interested in um, what's happening locally. Um, there was something like 100, Sarah Usden is her name, and she raised something like $150,000 for a local school board race. Oh my goodness. That is not, uh, it's not the usual amount. No, it's not. Not at all. Um, and so I think, I think it was a, um, an obscene amount of money. But, you know, the voices of dissent are small, and Quite honestly, we're not organized enough currently. I think this will look different mid-year, um, but currently not organized enough to combat the message. But there are groups working. So Is there? I mean, I know I, I used to teach in Philly, and um, they've had some some struggles of their own, very okay. similar to New Orleans, uh, recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've got the the teacher action group um, that's been working. In, to, to work in Philadelphia schools and Philadelphia problems and, and advocate, that, advocate that way. Is there a network forming that you would say? I mean, we used to have what I, I feel like one of the unfulfilled possibilities of the coalition of essential schools and things like this is the ability for, for teachers to network in advocacy groups that way, or even sometimes the major unions. Um, is, is there so, something connecting? So post-Katrina, the, the union was decimated. Mm -hmm. um, and now when you have a essentially, what is it, something, I think it's 70% of our students are in charter schools where there aren't unions. Uh, most of the teachers in the city right now are new to the city, pretty fresh, you know, pretty fresh novice teachers mm -hmm. um, and who work in schools that aren't um, friendly to the union. I think there's, my, I know of one kind of small but growing network of teachers who oppose many of the changes in the school district, and, and most of them have been here post-Katrina. But there isn't such a loud, um, a loud voice, a loud uproar in the way that you see in, in Philadelphia or in D.C. Um, yeah, or in Chicago, we just don't yet have that kind of organization. Do you see that as something that'll likely happen once those, once the new blood starts to really get the lay of the land and, and see what's going on around them? Do you feel like, just logically, they're gonna they're gonna jump on board? I think you know the new blood stays around for two or three years um, uh -huh. by design. <laughs> yeah, um, <clears throat> by design, um, and so the more you. Um, switch out teachers, so you, you um, fire, fire or veteran teachers um, retire, and your recruitment plan, particularly in a city that is 70% um, 
there's 66 charter schools here and there's only about 80 schools. Okay. So the vast majority of our um, schools are charter schools who aren't looking at the usual pipelines for teachers like like ed programs, right? Or looking at veteran teachers um, as a way to help boost their student achievement. They're looking for fresh blood that come, that's coming from some of these non-traditional alternative um, programs. So in terms of the turnover there, right? Like there's not, you know, two or three years is what you have and what, what will happen. Not sure how that helps, you know, how that generates sustainability. Well, and, and, um, and institutional memory is, is just decimated. And not only was it decimated, but it just doesn't sound like it's got a chance to grow. And I, I think, you know, that's a part of the advocacy world. Like myself, my friends at United Students for New Orleans and Families and Friends of Louisiana's Incarcerated Children and Flick um, and Karen Harper Royal and Kwame Smith. There's a bunch of us who are trying to really organize um, what something powerful did happen in the last month, January, um, right before the Super Bowl. A group of students and advocates and adult supporters got together um, and organized around Journey for Justice which is about the um, school closing. So they journeyed to DC and there was a, a hearing in front of, I cannot remember who, I wanna say Arnie Duncan was there, a congressional hearing on uh, school closing. Department of Justice, I'm sorry, Department of Justice hearing on school, um, school closing and the impact on the communities. So there's pockets, right? We just have to galvanize more support get the message out. And I think that's where the, the public education campaign is going to be really crucial. Well, and it sounds like um, that just given the given what is now the process for hiring teachers in New Orleans, that it might need, that it, that it is incumbent on community organizations and, and parents and families to start that ball. Mm -hmm. um, and that the teachers who are maybe the old guard who, who are more veteran or those who are coming into the city and, and see this as a good thing can jump on board, but but that where you might have a a teachers group leading the charge, that's not going to be able to be the case. So it's, it's got to be community and, and family led. Mm -hmm. I agree. I definitely agree. And there's groups like I mentioned, families and friends of Louisiana's incarcerated children that helps organize parents around a number of issues. One of those issues includes the school to prison pipeline, like the suspension stuff, which is also then connected to. Um, just schooling in New Orleans and what that looks like and how schooling has changed after Katrina. Um, so there's groups like that. There's the New Orleans Parent Organizing Network as, um, that has been around for a couple of years trying to organize parents around issues of education for their children and for the city. Um, and then there are the, the youth groups, youth organizing groups that have sprung up in the last five years. So there's um, Young Adults Striving for Success, which is a youth organizing group here at JJPL. There is Kids Rethink New Orleans, which is all over the news. I think they got an Emmy for um, an HBO documentary that they participated in or developed. Uh, there is a bunch of them right now. There's a, a youth group out of Vela, which is a Vietnamese um, organization in, in New Orleans. There's a, a youth group... Um, from Puentes, which is a, a group around Latinola, that's the name of it. Latinola is a youth group from Puentes, which is based out of uh, Jefferson Parish, which is our neighborhood, neighboring parish that works with the same issues, empowering youth to make 
um, and impact in their own communities. And what we're seeing is that they're galvanizing support around issues of educational equity. So there's folks doing it. We just have to be much more more strategic. Um, and organizations like myself that has the, that have some of the better manpower figure out how, ways in which to coordinate all the efforts. Well, I feel I feel better knowing that you're on the on the case. Oh, thank you, Zach. Um, I have I've reached the end of my of my cup, which usually on this podcast means that we wrap things up. Okay. Um, but uh, Jalan McNeil, you are fantastic. Thank you thank for talking. You, Zach Chase. Um, if people want to find you specifically. Um, online is there uh is there a blog is there twitter is there is a blog there is twitter i am on facebook so well, you can find me on facebook okay J-O- so fa- facebook jalon mcneil j-o-l-o-n-m-c-n-e-i-l or you can find me on twitter at j mac is fed up j-m-a-c-i-s-f-e-d or my blog is you, the letter you, got five, the letter five, the number five, minutes, M-I-N-U-T-E-S, at block, uh, dot blogspot. Awesome. Um, thank you so much for, for making time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm just excited that, you, that I can finally talk to Zach Chase and be on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Learning Grounds. I'm Zach Chase. Our intro and outro music comes from New Dance Boys Mission, and it's called Intro. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. Learning Grounds is also licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. I dare you to say it three times fast. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.